independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be really honest, I can really use your direct support during this time. Please, of course, do take care of yourself and your loved ones first. But if you are able to become a patron starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. And thank you so, so much to our existing patrons. It really helps a lot. When you go to an indigenous community, oftentimes people live in houses that don't even have a floor. There's just a dirt floor. They don't have running water or electricity. The poverty is something that we label because they themselves don't feel poor. A lot of times people that live in extreme conditions like that feel quite lucky and they seem grateful and they seem content and they find happiness. And so I started thinking, you know, why? Why why are they feeling so content when they have nothing? That was Christina Mittermeier, a photographer, conservationist, and marine biologist whose work has been published in hundreds of publications, including National Geographic Magazine, McLean's, and Time. She's also the founder of the prestigious International League of Conservation Photographers, and alongside her partner, Paul Nicklin, the co-founder of Sea Legacy, which is a nonprofit dedicated to protecting our ocean. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how Christina's view of enoughness has shifted from when she first moved to the United States from Mexico to her photography work, which then took her to various land-based communities of indigenous peoples around the globe, what we might miss out on when we only look at sustainability through the technical numbers and measurements of impact while leaving out the immeasurable personal connections with sacred ecology and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I honestly credit the inspiration to fall in love with nature and with the ocean to books because I grew up in a middle-class Mexican family up in the mountains of central Mexico, and I didn't have a lot of access to nature, to camping, to going out to the beach. So I think it was reading books. It was reading National Geographic and watching TV, you know, the Jacques Cousteau programs. They were, they were the thing that captured my imagination. So you first became a marine biologist. And then what was the aha moment that led you to wanting to bridge the gap between the fields of science and art by becoming a photographer? I became a marine biologist because I could see that we had an issue not just with sustainability when I was a a young person in the 1980s, 
We also had a, a tremendous issue with feeding the planet. And at that time, we thought that we should turn to the ocean for those answers. But when I went to university and I studied how we do fisheries, I soon became so aware of how unsustainable and cruel the way we capture our food from the ocean is. And I thought that, you know, I could use science to convey that urgency to protect the ocean, you know, as a conservationist when I graduated from school. And pretty quickly, I realized that you can spend a lot of time writing a scientific paper. And at the end of a long process, truly nobody reads it. (laughs) I started collaborating with another, with a photographer who was doing a coffee table book. And he published my scientific texts along with these photographs. And when he launched the book, I could see how people were browsing through the pages of the book and never once anybody stopped to read the text, but they commented on all the photos. And I thought, well, maybe a better way of opening a door to this conversation is through photography, you know, through storytelling instead of through data and graphs, because I realized that most people don't speak that language and a lot of people feel intimidated entering into a conversation when they don't feel like they have expertise. But photography, you know, we're all experts. We all carry, really now, we carry a device in our hands that allows us to engage with this language in a very comfortable way. Do you think that's been a big reason why our general public hasn't felt as motivated to really be activists and conservationists as maybe the scientific community that really knows this information firsthand? The thing I blame for this failure, because that's what it is, is just that we didn't understand, we as a scientific and conservation community didn't understand a long time ago that communications is key Mm. to engaging with the public. And when I was working for large conservation groups, I realized that a lot of the money is spent on policy and programs in the field, but only a small percentage of overall budgets is spent in communications. And the vast majority of that is spent on fundraising. So we never really made, you know, significant investments into conveying the message to the general public. And as a result, today, I think a lot of people are not aware that we have a big problem. They don't understand how our planet works. And this is not something that's being taught in schools anymore. So we have a big gap in communications that needs to be filled. And that's why I created Sea Legacy. Right. So a central theme that has woven different times of your life and work together is this idea of enoughness. Early on, when you first came to the United States, you were compelled to play up your whiteness and hide whatever gave you away as a Mexican. I know that was not an easy time for you, but can you take us back and share maybe what was happening or the societal pressures that you felt that led you to feel like you weren't enough as who you were? Yes, I arrived to the United States as an immigrant in 1991 when I married an American. And I ended up living in a very white, conservative neighborhood just outside of Washington, D.C. And I felt very insecure. You know, I felt that people, when they realized I was Mexican, they looked down on me. Immediately, it caused them prejudice. And I didn't understand. You know, I felt very, I I really lacked confidence. And so I tried to hide it. You know, I tried to pretend that I was American. And it took me some time when I realized that it's the talents that you bring to your life, the pride that you take in who you are, and just showcasing your abilities and the gifts that you can 
give to the world that give you the confidence to be exactly who you need to be, to be enough, right? To be able to give back. Mm. But it was a hard time. And I think it was partially because I was young and because I was new in a country where I didn't know anybody. And I just hated that feeling. I have a lot of empathy for people that may be feeling that way. Do you feel like those experiences have shaped your work as a photographer in any way? I feel like in a very big way, they have really allowed me to build empathy. And that's what I try to convey with my photography. I, a lot of my pictures are about relationships and creating connection and trying to build those bridges of empathy between ourselves and people that we see as other because they're a different race, they're a different ethnicity, or they're indigenous. And between ourselves and animals as well. You know, we really have this culture, especially in the United States, Canada, and Europe, of the, the, the worth of the self, right? We, we highlight ourselves a lot, but I think we need to do a lot of work to become more empathetic to other creatures and to each other. I know in your portraiture work, you make a note to really focus on their eyes in the photography. Is this why sort of allowing people to connect with the humanity in other people, even though they may look different, speak a different language, wear different adornments and so forth? Yes, it's so important. Uh, like all photographers, I follow the work of other photographers and I studied because I've always been really attracted to the portraiture work of indigenous people. And it strikes me how so many photographers illustrate indigenous people as uh, specimens in a museum, you know, almost like objects. Mm. And I really wanted to find th those things that make us common, that make us the same, make us human. You know, the fact that we're all children at some point in our lives, we all experience death and suffering and happiness and joy and dance. And what are the things that, that we have in common, not the things that separate us? And that's I think what I'm trying to convey with my portraits and of course the eyes are important because I feel like the storyteller, the photographer is really carrying out a, a two way conversation. I'm having a conversation with the people that are viewing my photographs and at the same time with the subject that's sitting in front of my camera. And all I'm doing is facilitating that conversation and translating, being a mediator, I guess, I feel like there's a very, it's a very subtle difference that you know firsthand as a visual communicator, but what does it look like when you have a photograph that treats indigenous communities as a specimen in a museum, as opposed to something that's more intimate, that really recognizes our shared humanity? So what would that look like in a piece of photograph? I suppose it, it's any time when we romanticize indigenous people and ask them to dress as a relic of who they are now. So, you know, bring out the headdress, bring out the paint, you know, mm. pretend, pretend that you don't wear modern clothes as if being indigenous somehow was in the things you wear mm. and not in who you are. And of course, your culture, your language, your traditions. And so when you see a photograph, a portrait of an indigenous person that's standing there, you know, arms to the side, looking straight at the camera, you know that the photographer has tried to capture the details of the costume and, you know, the specimen of this person more than who he is as a human or how that person relates to the rest of his community. So on the other hand, you sort of go in and try to capture the moments as they come. Yeah. And uh, what you find in most indigenous communities, even in the most remote parts of the world, is that 
people like wearing clothes, you know, and if you come to a community where there's children running around with no clothing and no shoes or adults even, if they get an opportunity to get their hands on a T-shirt, they want to wear those clothes. And so we should be photographing them like that because that represents who they are now. I now live in Canada and here there's so many indigenous communities and they live in houses that look just like mine and they dress just like I do and they drive vehicles. And that doesn't take away anything from their indigenousness, you know, their culture, their traditions, the way that they see the world and the way that they walk on this planet. Mm. And so when I photograph indigenous people, I try to honor that. You know, I don't I don't want to romanticize people and make them look like I wish they looked 100 years ago. Instead, it's my job to photograph them like they are now. The other thing that really stood out to me is all of your portraitures seem really intimate. Even when you're with these communities where you don't speak their language, how are you able to connect with them in a way that allows you to photograph them in these ways? You know, I think it's a unique set of social skills because you can imagine when you walk into a community where you are the only white person and you don't speak the language, it can get awkward so quickly. (laughs) And so having an intuition and being able to read body language and being able to convey a lot of information with the way that you smile and the way that you, you know, move around the room, how you listen. And even if you don't understand, you try to at least be present. All of that breaks the barriers that allow people to accept you and invite you into the intimate parts of their life. And, you know, it's not always possible, but I sure strive for that type of intimacy. I think it really comes through and that has personally very inspired me with your work. Also, throughout these years, you've gotten to meet and learn directly from many First Nations and indigenous communities around the globe. So going back to the concept of enoughness, I'm curious how your understanding and view of enoughness has evolved over time. And what was maybe a particular experience or moment that inspired you to interpret this in a different way? I think that's a two-part answer. And the first part of it is when I when I moved from Mexico to the United States, I too became infected with this disease of feeling like I, like I was not enough mm. and unhappy and disconnected. And the way to fill myself up, to make myself feel better, was shopping. And shopping is everywhere, tempting you all the time with stuff that you don't need. And so you go out and you buy a trinket, a thing that you don't need, and it makes you happy for five seconds, for 10 seconds, and then you realize that you need more. So it's a, it's a, an emptiness that is never filled. The second part of the answer is when you go to an indigenous community and you experience people that have so little in terms of material wealth. Oftentimes people live in houses that don't even have a floor. There's just a dirt floor. They don't have running water or electricity. The poverty is, is something that we label because they themselves don't feel poor. You know, mm. A lot of times people that live in extreme conditions like that feel quite lucky and they seem grateful and they seem content and they find happiness. And so I started thinking, you know, why? Why, why are they feeling so content when they have nothing? And I realized that they are filling the the emptiness with other stuff. And that is the relationships that you have in your life, the close people to you, your language, your traditions, whatever worship, uh, whatever religion 
is important to you. If you have those things, then you don't need to fill your life with stuff. It feels like that kind of feeling that void is more permanent and more fulfilling. And so what I really like about enoughness is that it's, it's something that we all can practice. So I started being really mindful. And when I feel tempted to buy something that maybe I don't need, I ask myself, do I really need this? Or am I buying this just because it's going to momentarily make me happy? And it feels like it's, you know, same as practicing yoga or practicing fiscal responsibility. You can practice this every day. And I find that I need a lot less. It feels like we get distracted and even divided easily by our differences. But like you just mentioned, what really connects us is our very universal human desires for, you know, relationships, purpose, a sense of meaning, belonging, and so forth. So maybe who we are at our core is largely the same, meaning we're not inherently destructive nor bad. But when we're placed in a materialistic and capitalistic system that really promotes consumerism and sees humans as separate to nature, when we try to pursue those same human desires and feelings, we then end up making a lot of decisions that can cause harm without us realizing. Absolutely. And I I think this pandemic and the way that we're living now has really put exactly that sentiment at the forefront of everybody's minds. Because through capitalism, we have built a system that celebrates, you know, this idea of of an economy that has to grow at all costs. And in growing, that type of economic system has left behind both humanity and nature. And so we need to ask ourselves if if this is an economic system that's serving us well. And maybe we need to imagine a different way of operating our societies. Right. So the economic system is kind of, it's completely human constructed. So we're sort of living in this fake world that we created rather than trying to observe what is actually happening out here in the real world and trying to really nourish and regenerate and pay respect to the earth that gave us life. Yeah, and think think about money for a moment. Money is a human construct. When you go to remote indigenous communities, they don't even know what money is. Mm-hmm. The the way society operates is not so transactional. But for us here, we measure ourselves to others and the questions that we're asking when we meet somebody, like when you meet a colleague, right, at work, is that person making more than I'm making? Do they do they have a bigger car? Do they live in a better house? Can they afford more? I mean, it's this conversation inside our minds about money that makes it so corrosive, corrosive and so destructive. Mm. And it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we shouldn't. The metric for happiness should not be money. Right. In your book, Amaze, you write, like most forms of indigenous subsistence, the gathering of wild food cultivates a deep understanding of the changing seasons, food sources, and regional climate. For millennia, cultures like the Gitgayat have monitored the ecosystem their traditional territories depend on. Passed down through spiritual beliefs and storytelling, these vital observations guide their actions as an integral part of the living world. They thrive by adapting to nature rather than forcing nature to mold to them, end quote. There are a lot of commonalities when we look at what people in different places eat, but when we compare how people in the so-called developed world get our food with the land-based indigenous ways of subsistence, what do you think that says about our differing relationships with our environments and with food? You know, it's such a such a great question because we, in especially in urban 
societies have such a sick relationship to food because we have no idea where it comes from or the cost of producing it to the planet. And so therefore we are consuming stuff that we are completely isolated from. Even the water we drink, right? You open the tap and you don't imagine the stream where that water came from. Mm. And I think that's very destructive and very isolating because humans for the majority of our history have had this deep relationship with the with the food we eat because you have to be mindful of where it comes from if you're going to survive. And we have built systems that really have separated us from the sources of our food. And I'm not advocating that we all should be going hunting or that we all should have a garden, but we should be a lot more mindful of, of where our food comes from and the damage that producing that food is creating for our planet. And I mean, just learning more and more about our ecological and social issues today, I feel like a lot of people are overwhelmed and trying to scramble to see what we can do. And in the pursuit of finding solutions and trying to define and clarify what it means to live sustainably in the dominant Western culture, I think a lot of the focus has been on the physical what and that increasingly entails the how as well, which is great. So, for example, organic food, FSC certified wood, MSC certified seafood, and so on. But it feels like an element that we're still largely leaving out is the immeasurable element of sacredness. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about what sacred ecology is and how we might approach sustainability differently if we're able to see and experience that sacredness. That's a lovely question as well. I understand sacred ecology to be a really personal thing. Ecology, of course, is the relationship between living organisms, and we imagine this to be mostly out there in the wilds and nature. But I think it's the, the, the relationship that we have to the planet we live on. And it's different for every person, but we all should be cultivating it. So when you go to a places, for example, in China, where you have a small village, every village has a, a mountain that has a sacred forest. And the sacred forest is a place where you're not allowed to harvest any medicinal food or firewood or even water. It's a place for meditation and it's a place for you know mindfulness. But it also plays a different role because it becomes a water catchment for the village. So the reasons for protecting it are diverse and sometimes completely unrelated. But every community should have those sources of communion with nature and additional ecosystem services. And so finding and cultivating your own sacred ecology, your own sense of who you are on this planet, again, it's a personal practice, but it's one that's really important because it grounds you and it, it gives you the opportunity to be grateful and to perhaps be a little more mindful of the footprint that we each have on, on earth. Hmm. And it feels like with our globalized food system, where the supply chains are really complex, where we might not even know where our food comes from, that feels like a a pretty big challenge because a lot of this, you know, experiencing this sacredness is having a direct relationship with the environment where we get our food from, right? So how do you see us in this dominant Western culture that has seen itself as separate to nature begin to recultivate this sort of deeper relationship? I, I think this pandemic is going to teach us a lot of lessons. And that's going to be one of them, because 
one of the things that's been seriously disrupted is those food systems. Uh, there's food rotting on the, in the fields because there's nobody to pick it up. And at the same time, people are hungry in the city because the food banks are empty. Like that's the best representation of the disconnect between the food that we eat and the people that are eating the food or that need the food to survive. I hope, I hope that this pandemic teaches us that, that we need to rethink some of those systems. And globalization has given us so many conveniences, but the price has been enormous. And we have become accustomed. You know, you go to the grocery store anywhere in North America and you expect to have fresh avocados and French, fresh limes and lemons, even, even though they're not in season, right? So they're being brought from the other side of the world and the price that we're paying for them is enormous in terms of the destructive nature of transportation and just producing food at that scale. It really baffles me how in the name of efficiency, we're converting a lot of very biodiverse and lush and rich ecosystems into monocultures and then having the whatever is produced from those lands shipped across the world to other places. So... <laughs> Within the Amazon rainforest, I'm sure there's so many nutritious food sources that are right there. And certainly when we protect it as is, that is that is a way for people locally to be resilient and to have access to healthy food right away. But then we sort of wipe all of that out to create these monocultures of unhealthy foods that are shipped across the world with this global supply cha chain that in a pandemic like this, if something fails within that supply chain, then it has ripple effects across the entire system. Yeah. Two thoughts come to mind. The, the first one around this idea that destroying diversity and creating mono cultures that are homogeneous is the perfect recipe for disease to thrive. Because if you have a diverse system and you introduce a virus, you know, that virus it will not infect every species the same way. But if you have a monoculture and you introduce a virus or a pest or whatever it is that attacks that species, you will wipe out the entire culture. And, and so diversity lends resilience to the system. And the more diversity of species we have, the more resilient we become to pandemics like this one. That's the, the key. The second was that infringing on nature to produce food or whatever, you know, that, and we need to talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, which is the overpopulation on this planet. But we are bringing these viruses and pathogens closer to humans because we're taking them out of the isolation that they are right now in nature. We are not only cutting down the forest and infringing on, on the habitat of species, we're bringing those animals to market where viruses and, other, and bacteria have an opportunity to jump from one species to another. So I think uh, that diseases like this one, like the one we're experiencing now, if we continue the way we are going, are just going to become more deadly and more more frequent. We're going to see a lot more of this type of epidemic. And that is a very sad reality. Something that's really frustrated me is how mainstream media isn't really talking about these things. They're not really talking about how humans have created the conditions to make pandemics like this one more likely. You know, we're focused a lot on sanitation and hygiene. So people are using sanitizers that kill 99% of bacteria all over their houses or um, mm -hmm. washing our hands. All of these things are important, but we're not really talking about what we've been doing to create the conditions to allow these things to be more likely to happen. So I hope we can 
talk more about this and really come to the solutions that we need to be able to address the root causes of this. Yeah. Have you seen the the video that we released last week? It's a message from COVID-19 to humanity. I'll send you the link. Yeah, we can link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And it's funny because I posted about it on my Instagram and I was surprised by the number of conspiracy theories that are emerging. You know, this was a man-made virus that started in a laboratory in China, you know? <laughs> like that. And when in fact, we know because we have DNA that this jump from probably a bat to probably a pangolin in some market in China, you know, we know where it started. And it's not the first time, you know, we have many examples of other viruses who ha- that have jumped from animals to people in the past, things like HIV and SARS and even um, mad cow disease. So this is not the first time that it's happened. It's just surprising that it didn't become a pandemic sooner. Because with so many humans living on Earth, we are like a giant homogeneous crop waiting to be consumed, susceptible to disease. Yeah. So if we think about like monocultures with a lot of maybe the same type of corn in the entire field, if one gets some sort of illness, then it's it very easily will spread to the rest or factory farming as well. That's why they use so many antibiotics, because if one animal gets sick, then they they, they easily pass it to the entire rest of that that group. Absolutely. So I think increasing diversity to our systems is a great way to protect ourselves from future diseases. Another great passion of yours that we definitely can't leave out of this conversation is our ocean, which led you to co-found the nonprofit Sea Legacy with Paul Nicklin. Besides their inherent beauty, which a lot of people universally enjoy and appreciate, what do you think everyday people need to understand more about our dependencies on the ocean that makes their protection so vital to our very existence? I'm always uh, surprised because we see ourselves as terrestrial creatures because we breathe air, but we live on an ocean planet. And the the influence of this ecosystem on our lives is enormous because it is the largest ecosystem on Earth. And so we really are ocean creatures, and we should understand a lot better how that system works if we're going to survive on this planet. I always give the example when when somebody says, you know, we don't need to protect Earth because we're going to move to Mars. It makes you laugh. <laughs> like, you, who is going to Mars? I'm you know? not going there. Are you friends with Elon? <laughs> He's going to take you in his spaceship. But imagine that we were going to go to Mars and that we are going to board the spaceship and it's going to take a few years to take us to a new planet. The minute we boarded, we would receive such a thorough briefing on how every system works. Where does the air come from? How does it get filtrated? You know, where does water come from? What are the things that we shouldn't touch because we might need later? Well, living on Earth is no different. We are living on a spaceship, and this is the only home we have. And in the big scheme of the galaxy, it's actually pretty small. So we should be doing a lot more to understand how every system works. And I've come to realize that people feel so separate from the ocean that what we wanted to do with storytelling is to create that connection and build that relationship and increase ocean literacy because it's the only way that we're ever going to be successful at protecting more of the ocean. Otherwise, it's just out of sight, out of mind. People are not thinking about it. So with Sea Legacy, we, we wanted to make people fall in love with the ocean and start feeling more like ocean citizens. And then we wanted to do something more. We we wanted to provide an opportunity for people to 
feel empowered to have impact and make it so easy so that somebody who's sitting in an office in New York City or in London, you know, from their desktop can actually learn a lot and have the opportunity to collaborate with a lot of other people to create impact. And that's a beautiful story. So we're launching a technology app platform in June. Uh, it's called Only One. And people can sign up right now, their name, if you go to only.one, that's our URL, to see what this platform is all about. I think creating that sense of community that we're acting all together is critical for success in conserving our planet. Mm, beautiful. We'll be sure to link to that in our show notes as well so our listener can check out that resource when it launches. So now that you're working on Sea Legacy and furthering your uh, your work in conservation, I'm wondering how your approach to photography may have changed today, you know, coming from being more of a journalist to being more of an activist, when you have a deeper message that you're trying to get across and even action that you're hoping to inspire on the other end. That's a beautiful question too. Um, I, I tried to study storytelling from some of the best storytellers in history. And one of my favorites is Martin Luther King. So when he starts his beautiful, I have a dream speech, he doesn't start by saying, I have a nightmare. <laughs> he starts by painting a beautiful picture of what the future could be if we work together hard to get there. And then he takes us on this journey where he reminds us that right now things are not as good as they could be. And then he proposes few solutions and he paints this idea of the future. Well, I try to do the same with my photographs. I want my photography to be very hopeful and very inviting and beautiful and then at key inflection moments, I like to remind audiences that not all is well. Mm. And so part of my photography has become very fine artsy. You know, I like the calmness that a lot of negative space brings to an image, which is also something that is very pleasing to the eye. And so I stopped focusing so much in action shots and, and started thinking more about how an image makes you feel if that makes sense. Right. And finally, before we go into our concluding five closing questions, you're at the front lines of ocean conservation, working with a lot of leaders in this field. What is one success story that you can share? Maybe something that you're proud of Sea Legacy having accomplished. And then for us to learn from that, what can we do as individuals to help further this work, support you and Sea Legacy, and hopefully be well on our way towards regenerating abundant and healthy oceans again? Uh, I love that question. We have many success stories. Uh, we have found that when we wake up as a community and we act together, we can have tremendous impact. And so we have mobilized the people that follow us to take action on a number of campaigns. We did one here off the coast of California to help ban drift nets. And we mobilized people to sign a petition that went to the California legislature. And in a couple of weeks, we gathered 112,000 signatures, mm. which was enough for California senators to, to pass a bill that was signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown within four months. And when people see the impact that they can have, they feel more empowered to take more action. So what I really like about Only One, the platform, is that every person that goes into a journey with us will have their own personal dashboard and you will be able to see your cumulative impact over time, how many dollars you've donated, how many marine protected areas you've helped create, and how many of your friends are also engaged in, in this type of 
impact activity. And so that sense of community is, I think, the most important validation for people to want to participate, to feel empowered, to feel like they're creating change in a very large community. Green Dreamer for our mindful musical intermission. This is The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor Hall. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I just finished reading a beautiful book called The Curve of Time. Mm. It's written, I have it right here. It's written by a woman named Willie Blanchett and she has passed away, but she was a mother of five and she became a widow and she took her little boat up the coast of British Columbia and they had all these amazing adventures with the children and the boat and I, I just love to be able to escape into another time. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I owe it to young children, especially my own children, to try as hard as I can to do better, to to leave a better legacy. And I will never be tired. I will always wake up in the morning ready to, to try to make this better. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Ah, I started riding my bicycle <laughs> I took out my road bike and um, I, I do a 15-kilometer loop that has a 1,000-meter elevation. So I climb wow. on this bike and it's an incredible <laughs> workout, but it also takes me outside and close to nature. And I love it. It allows me time to think. Uh, what are you working on right now to elevate your regenerative impact for our planet? I am so busy working on the content that's going to go on the only one platform at launch. So finding new photographs, working uh, on collaborating with editors on videos and writing long form stories, which is one of my great passions. And I'm having a lot of fun with it and I can't wait to share. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I think this pandemic is waking people up to the importance of protecting a large chunk of our planet for the future. And so I'm pretty hopeful that as we emerge from this, we're going to find the political will to actually make the protection of nature a priority for all governments. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Christina's work, you can head to www.christinamittermeyer.com and to follow their nonprofit, Sea Legacy, that's clegacy.org. All of this will be linked in our show notes. And while this conversation was auditory, most of Christina's work is visual. So please do go follow her on Instagram at Mitty, that's M-I-T-T-Y, Twitter at C. Mittermeyer, and on Facebook at Christina Mittermeyer. Christina, thank you so much for sharing your 
your story, expertise, and learning lessons with us. You've been one of my personal heroes and a huge inspiration to me. So I just want to also extend my deep gratitude to you for your leadership and work in conservation. As we're closing off here, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? The most important thing we each can do going forward is allow ourselves to think of ourselves as superheroes for our planet. So don't be afraid of wearing your imaginary spandex suit and (laughs) it doesn't matter what kind of work you do in your everyday life. You can always have a a big influence in the people around you and you can always find a way to contribute to the culture of appreciation and love of nature. So don't be afraid, be a superhero for the planet and just declare yourself for earth today. Oh